this is an area that has a lot of clarity in certain fundamental aspects, but when you get into the weeds of trying to come up with definitive views about timing of Christ's return and the millennium, I think each view has its strengths and weaknesses. So I'm just wanting to argue for, as I said last week, a charity and a humility regarding these millennial views or just regarding the whole body of doctrine of end times. Here's what I think you really should, in fact, I think you must believe if you're a Christian, just some essentials there, letter B there. I think you really need to believe that Jesus is coming back in bodily form. I think that's essential to biblical Christianity, okay? All these views believe that. I also think you, you should and must believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. In other words, there's going to be a, a judgment where everybody's going to live forever. I think you must believe that to be a biblical Christian, and all of these views that, believe that. I think you must believe that Satan is fully and finally defeated. And again, the timing may differ, but all of these views believe that. And then finally, I think you must believe that there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. Uh, I think that's clear in Scripture and um, I think all of these views believe that. So I think those are the essentials uh, that all, pretty much all Christians hold to, and I think you should as well. Okay, let's get into what I want to be the heart of tonight is, I want to give you a, a kind of, um, a, a kind of, if I could put it this way, a lens, a two-age lens to sort of help you read New Testament scripture, and in particular, verses about the millennium and the end times and Jesus' return through this grid. Now, it's not a perfect grid. And I say, I say uh, I'm putting my cards on the table. I think this grid accords best with an amillennial view of scripture that I looked at last week, that I explained last week, that I think makes the most sense does not, it's not without its weaknesses, but I think it makes the most sense, and I want to give it to you as a kind of way, it's a humble offering as one of your pastors, a humble offering to give you a kind of way of sort of piecing together some of these scriptures that are hard to piece together as we look at the end times. So a two-age lens as an interpretive grid to understanding the kingdom of God and the return of Christ. So let's look at A. The challenge is there on your sheet uh, in defining the kingdom of God. When is the kingdom of God coming? Well, there's a great challenge because, in a sense, the kingdom of God is already here, and it's not yet fully realized. We've talked about that a lot. We've talked about that when we've been going through Hebrews on Sunday morning. Uh, it's here, in a sense, and it's still to come. We see scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus and Paul will say that the kingdom is here, clearly, but yet it's still coming. So there's this kind of tension of where the kingdom is and when it will be fully realized. And in fact, the ironic thing, and as much as the kingdom of God shows up in Scripture, there's no real clear or concise definition of the kingdom of God in the Bible. When is the kingdom coming? What is it? Here's, here's one stab at it that, that I think a lot of theologians have have, have found helpful and I think is helpful is just thinking about the kingdom think about the king and think about the kingdom is the king's rule over the king's people in the king's place I think that's kind of a helpful way again that's not a perfect definition but just thinking about the rule and reign of Jesus over his people 
um, and, and what's the place? I think in one sense, it's everything, and in a more specific sense, it's heaven. It's the, the, the kingdom of God. So <coughs> with that in mind, I want us to look at, I want to show you in, uh, especially in Matthew chapter 13, a kind of lens by which we see this kind of two ages. This, I want you to think in terms of this age and the age to come. And I want you to think of it in terms of, and again, I'm sort of unashamedly, and I'm open to criticism on this, and I'm sure you'll give it to me when we open it up for questions and answers. But I want to sort of unashamedly show you that I think that there is, let me give you this, that, there, that, the, that the Bible, a, a good way of looking at the Bible is thinking about that really there are two ages. This age, here we are, this is Jesus has, has, has come, he's, his incarnation, his life on earth, and his cross and his resurrection. And now we are in this age, and Christ will return, and then comes the, the age to come which accords, I think, with uh, a, a an amillennial, and even to some degree, a postmillennial view of the millennium. So we are living in this age, and the Bible basically speaks of two ages, this age and the age to come, here and then eternity. And the, the decisive factor in that is the second coming of Christ. And there's a lot of clarity, I think, that will come if you can sort of see this. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. And I just want to read this really important half chapter. And I think we're going to have the scriptures on the side screen. Um, but I think it'd be helpful for you to follow along in your Bible as well. So let me read Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. I'm going to read quickly because it's a long passage. But I want you to see there's several parables here that I think, I think will show us, if we see it, that kind of argue for a kind of duality here of this age and then the age to come. So Matthew chapter 13, starting verse 24, the parable of the weeds. He put another, another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So let me pause there and just kind of take that parable and just kind of try and superimpose it here on this, on this, um, this uh, illustration is you have th this, this, this characteriz characterization of this, this, this age. There's a, there's a field, and there's both wheat and there are weeds in this field. Okay, and it, they grow together, and the decisive point that, in fact, he says they're going to grow together, and then Jesus comes, and he sorts out the wheat from the weeds. There's a kind of, there's a kind of simplicity to the parable here. It's basically, I think he's talking about ministry in the gospel age, this age, 
people, the, the church is preaching the gospel. People are growing. They're becoming Christians. Wheat. There's also weeds. And then Jesus returns and there's the harvest. Okay? I think, I think that's the picture here. Verse 31. Let's keep reading. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, so I think what's going on here, it's sort of a similar a picture of the kingdom of heaven and advancing. In this particular picture, though, he's talking about a tree that becomes very big and grows, I'm a great artist as you can tell here, a tree that grows bigger, post-millennialist, and we'll look at this later, look at this and say, ah, oh, this is, this actually, this actually is possible evidence of the Christianization of everything because we see this tree kind of getting bigger and bigger, do you see that? And then this leaven, this, this dough is growing and, and it's getting bigger and bigger to everything. So that's a possible interpretation of that. But again, you have something characteristic of this age, and then Jesus returns, okay? Verse 34. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Okay, now he's going to explain the uh, parable of the weeds. Then the, he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Okay, so let me, let me just kind of erase all this and give us a fresh palette here before I get into this reading here. He says, Okay, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. It's Jesus, capital M. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age. Okay, so this age, the age. The harvest is at the end of the age. What's at the end of this age? Jesus' return. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of this age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Again, think about that two age, this age and that age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So notice that. There's this, there's this, this age. There's that sowing. The, the sun, Christ, and the devil. Wheat and weeds. And then there is this harvest. It's the return of Christ. And then immediately there's, there's judgment. Then the righteous, so there'll be, there'll be judgment. Those will be cast away who disobeyed him. And there will be eternity forever with Jesus. There seems to be a real simplicity. I want you to see that, okay? Verse 44, a couple smaller parables. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven was like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. I mean, praise God. Look, it's not just for Jews, right? It's not just for Americans. It's for people from every tribe and tongue. 
When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good containers, but threw away the bad. So there's, again, there's that, there's that sorting, judgment. So it will be at the end of the age. Again, you have this clarity. The angels will come and out, come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, so do you see the finality there? Sort of the simplicity of this age. Jesus returns with his angels, judgment, the age to come. Okay, let me just read these last few verses because I just get a, I just, I kind of, I think this is funny. Verse 51, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. <laughs> you just wondered, like, wouldn't you just want to be a fly on the wall with those disciples? He says all this, like, did you get this? And it's kind of like when you're in class and the teacher sort of says something above your head and you don't, you don't want to look stupid. You're like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just love that. I want to talk to Peter and John and say, what was really going on in verse 51? Did, were you just bluffing it? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out the treasure, brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So do you see that? I think Matthew 13 gives us a kind of, I'm not saying that Matthew 13 is the only interpretive lens. I'm not saying that everything regarding the end times runs through Matthew 13. There's some things that don't fit in Matthew 13. I realize that there's some holes and I get it. I'm just saying that it, it seems to bring a kind of clarity to this age. This is going to be mixed. Jesus' return and then a finality of judgment, okay? And I think you see that repeated again. Go to Matthew chapter 25. I, I have it written down there on your, on your sheet. I won't take the time to read it. But you can later, Matthew chapter 25, the final judgment, and it's talking about when Jesus comes. And basically, instead of using the analogy of wheat and weeds, he uses the analogy of sheep and goats. And there's going to be this judgment. And basically, sheeps, <laughs> sheep and goats have lived together in the same field to some degree this age. And there's a judgment, and then the sheep are separated from the goats, and it's the age to come. And so I think the, the final judgment picture in Matthew chapter 25 of the sheep and the goats and the separating is basically another way of talking about uh, the, the wheat and the weeds, this, 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 this dual age. Now I want you to notice some characteristics of this picture of the kingdom. There's a kind of decisiveness. Uh, there's not a, a gap in... Uh, resurrections. There's not, there's not continued evil uh, or sin after Jesus's return, after the harvest. There's a decisiveness. There's a kind of simplicity. This age, Jesus comes, the age to come. There's a finality. And notice some characteristics of this kingdom is that it is, that it is mixed. It's mixed with wheat and weeds. It's mixed with sheep and goats. Okay, so that's, that's, I think, the picture we have in Matthew 13 and Matthew 25. Okay, so let me just show you a, a bunch more verses that I think speak to this, uh, this age and the age to come, because this isn't the only place. I think you see this sort of all throughout uh, the, the New Testament. I think it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. In other words, you see it everywhere in the New Testament. Both Jesus and Paul repeatedly spoke of this age and the age to come as two successive distinct periods. So let's just look. Uh, at this age, some verses there, Matthew 12, I'm going to have it on the screen, and then it'll also be on the side, um, but I want the screen so I can kind of highlight some places. Matthew 12, 
this is Jesus speaking, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. It seems like a, a finality there. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, this is the Great Commission, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of this age. So, I mean, obviously he's going to be with us in the age to come, but we're going to be with him. He's coming to us, so he's wanting to ensure, he's wanting to assure and give confidence to his disciples that he's with them, even though he's not physically present through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So he's with them in this evil age. Luke 18, 29. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. So do you see the, the dual nature? So Jesus is saying, hey, Living for me now is worth it, and it's worth it in this life. Righteousness and obedience is worth it in this life, this age, and in the age to come. Luke 20, 34 through 36, Jesus said, The sons of this age marry this age. Again, see what Jesus is doing there. And are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So notice Jesus is... He's making a distinction between this age and that age. Again, this just is kind of implicit throughout the teaching of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so you see again that, that dichotomy. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul says, in the case of the God of this, in their case, the God of this world, or this age is another way of saying that, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Galatians 1, 4. Speaking of Christ, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God of our God and Father and Paul says I think this is really helpful because it has both ages here Paul says in Ephesians 1 uh, speaking of God the Father's work he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places so he's reigning right now I think that's a picture of a realized kingdom a realized millennium far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So again, there's a certain clarity to Paul's teaching there. He says it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Uh, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the certainty of unriches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, you see this age. And then here, I think Titus 2, this is such a beautiful, important verse. Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I don't think that teaches universalism. I think that means all kinds of people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we are, we are in this present age waiting for our blessed hope when Jesus returns in the age to come. So uh, do, you, 
that, I think, are verses that characterize this age. Now, let's look at some verses to characterize uh, the age to come. Uh, some of them are overlap. Luke 18, verse 30, Jesus says that, uh, that you will receive eternal life in the age to come. Luke 20, 35, uh, marriage is in the age and to the resurrection. There's no marriage in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Meaning the age to come. He's, it's coming. It's not fully here yet. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53, I think is speaking of what happens when Jesus comes back and we are transformed. We are made like him. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, and I think this is speaking of Jesus' return. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. In other words, Jesus' return, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. So there's this, I think that is, that happens right here in this moment when Christ returns. Those that are still alive, Christians that are still alive, are instantly changed and made like him. And those that have come with him, Christians, their spirits that have been with Christ since the day they died, they are reunited with their uh, bodies. They are glorified. We're in the twinkling of an eye, changed, and we are with Christ forever. That's going to be a glorious day. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, about just what happens when we personally die. Galatians 5.21 says, I warn you, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God that's coming. And again, we see this, I just read this, Ephesians 1, 21, not only in this age, but the age to come. So there's this idea of the age to come. And again, here we see this sort of simplicity of the age that we're in, Jesus' return, and the age to come in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is a glorious passage. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died already. There's a question in the church at Thess Thessalonia, Thessalonica about what happens after they die because Paul hadn't got the opportunity to teach them about that. And so they were thinking that what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died, will they make it into the resurrection? And he's teaching them about this. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, about those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, he's going to bring with him the souls of all that are in heaven presently and die until the point when Jesus returns. He's going to come with his heavenly army of angels and Christians who are with him as souls. And then verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive. So there's two types of people here. There's, there's those who are with Jesus already dead in heaven as spirits and those who are still alive when Jesus returns who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, this army of spirit Christians that are dead and have been with Christ for ages will be reunited, resurrected with their bodies. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever. Encourage one another with these words. I mean, I, I think that that picture is, is what's happening here. 
Christ returns with a multitude of spirits that have died. They're reunited with their bodies. They're glorified. People that are alive are instantly transformed. And then the age to come happens forever and ever. I think that's what's going on there. Uh, 1 Timothy 6. Uh, well, there's just more verses. I think you get the idea. So I, do, I, do you see that? Do you see this? Do you see this? This The way, and this is, again, this is all throughout the New Testament. This age and the age to come seem to be this kind of clarity. It's, this is the grid through which I think we should try and run all of these confusing verses. Okay, let me do D, and then I'll, I'll pause for maybe some questions. Meshing the two-age lens with the millennial views. Okay. Um, how does this accord with the amillennial view or the realized view? Well, I think it accords well because I think it's kind of part of the amillennial view. I think that this, this two-age lens, this age and the age to come, uh, makes sense that we are living in this time where there's good and bad. There's wheat and weeds. There's sheep and goats. Okay? In fact, I would argue that um, I'm kind of a, what you would maybe call an optimistic amillennial. I think, in a sense, there are sort of two kingdoms. There's sort of the common kingdom that, of course, God is over and in control of, but he's sort of given the keys to the, the prince of the power of the air, as it says in Ephesians 2. So there's the common kingdom, and that's kind of like the world, the world, the common kingdom. And then the, 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 the redeemed king kingdom. This is common. And then the redeemed. And so I think the redeemed are always growing in Christ, becoming more and more like him. And this world is getting worse and worse and worse. So in one sense, I think things are getting always getting better. There's more churches, more Christians. There's more people coming to faith than have ever been before. But the world's getting more and more wic wicked. The only thing you need to do to prove the wickedness of the world increasing is to watch that ridiculous, what was that, the Emmys or the Grammys or whatever, that garbage that was on the other day. I mean, come on, you'd do better if you drank gasoline. That would be better for your health than to watch that garbage. But, but that is a picture of how the world is, don't drink gasoline. <laughs> I get carried away. But I think it's a picture of how the, the, the common kingdom of this world, the world I think is a better way, is always getting worse, and the redeemed, the church, is always getting better. And that accords well with the wheat and the weeds, or the sheep and the goats. And so we live in this mixed world. There's this tension. There's this tension. And I think we see that in Romans chapter 8. Let me, let's put Romans chapter 8 up on the screen. This is a, uh, uh, such an important verse. Uh, I, I, you guys know how much I love Romans chapter 8. I think Romans chapter 8 which is maybe the most um, comprehensive chapter in the Bible to explain the way things are, in this middle of it, I think it kind of gives us a snapshot of how, of this age that we're living in. He says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we're waiting for, for, for the transformation, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's, it, I think there's this tension that Romans chapter 8 speaks of, and, and I, I, that's all I'll read for now. Okay, so I think that amillennialism uh, accords really well with this particular view. Okay, what about premillennialism? Okay, premillennialism. Um, let's erase this. How does this, how does premillennialism mesh with this sort of two-age grid? Well, I think one of the problems with premillennialism is that it holds for a future millennium where there will still be uh, sin and rebellion and even death. And although there are some passages that seem to sort of point that way, I think if we read all of the Bible together, I think we kind of let the Bible interpret the Bible, I think that this grid that we see all throughout the Bible mitigates against that interpretation of those passages, and I think that it's hard to mesh, it's hard to mesh a literal millennium after the return of Christ where there's still sin, rebellion, and death when there seems to be such finality, wheat and tares, sheep and goats, judgment, eternity, heaven or hell forever. And so I think, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a sort of strike in my mind against premillennialism. Um, okay, uh, postmillennialism. Well, um, I think that postmillennialism is closer to, uh, I, think, I think there's a lot I would say that I would agree with about postmillennial critique of culture. But again, I think that the difference between an amillennial and postmillennial view is basically the degree of optimism. Where a postmillennial is going to think that things are going to increasingly get better, whereas a, a, an amillennial, there's going to be different, you know, there's going to be different opinions, um, uh, just different trajectories. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to... Look at Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 25 and say, okay, there just seems to be this mixture of wheat and tares, wheat and weeds, sheep and goats. In Romans chapter 8, where there's this suffering and strife that to some degree uh, characterizes this age, and it's hard to mesh that with, I think, the overly optimistic although I want to be optimistic, but I would say the overly optimistic perspective of post-millennialism a- as it looks at this age. Okay, and we'll look at some, maybe some verses that might, um, that both of those views would bring up. But let me pause there and just stop for questions um, before I look at some implications. Okay, questions, comments? Questions, comments? Anybody go to the mic? Like, totally... Yeah, Ben, lift the mic up and make sure it's on and speak into it. Yeah, thanks. Is it? Got me? Yep, there yep. we go. Real quick, the um, I guess what's your basis for the degree of optimism? Because I, like, I, I look at the history of the church up until now, yeah. and I see it as pretty optimistic yeah. as the, the early church was several thousand believers at the time the New Testament was written, tens of yep. thousands maybe, yep. and now it's like, on every continent, you know, except maybe Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the spread of the gospel has gone to a very, you know, throughout the world, and it's continuing, you know, if we look at the Reformation, even since the Reformation, mm-hmm. we've had Reformation of the Reformation even. Like, mm-hmm. we, we're continuing to grow um, in, uh, you know, how we 
understand God's word and the gospel, um, and that yeah. continues to go forth. So I guess I'm struggling with seeing what would be maybe a, the reason why not to be optimistic. Well, I think I would be optimistic. So I would be I, – so I think that if you look at um, – if you look at uh, – this is what I was getting at here is that um, if you look at postmillennialism, and let's just sort of uh, generalize it and say that all postmillennialists are sort of equally optimistic, okay, really, really optimistic view, then I think there are varying degrees of optimism – and, and really, I think that's the only major difference between post and all-mill. I think you got some all-mill people that are going to be just slightly below that. And this is these are just varying, these dashed lines are just varying degrees of optimism. And I would say that I think that post-millennialism has a lot of merit, but where I think it gets into a little bit of trouble is it is it doesn't fully account for Verses like Romans chapter 8 and the seemingly mixture of suffering that we still face and what I just read in Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 25 about there being this kind of seemingly mixture in the field. And again, Ben, it's all about just matter of degree or perspective or even kind of personality type. I mean, like I said last week, you have your, you know, Winnie the Pooh has Eeyore and Tigger as his friends. And I, so I think that just depending on a person's experience, depending on maybe even where they live, depending on their particular situation is going to affect their view. I would say that I'm going to give a hearty amen to everything you said about the advance of the gospel. I just don't think that when you look at Matthew 13 and Matthew chapter 25, and then you look at some of the passages that seem to indicate the, 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 the return of Christ amongst sort of still this mixed field um, should cause us to think that the whole world has to be sort of Christianized until Jesus' return. That's what I would say. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does. I, I guess um, I would just, uh, not to say push back, but just yeah. as, as a, no, as a counter of the idea of, you know, the, the – the weeds are sown into a wheat field. It's not wheat that's sown into a tear field, you know, or yeah. that there's the, 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 who is the guy that owns the field? Like yep. God is the one who owns the field. And yep. so there's, yep. I, uh, you know, I, again, I, I don't have an issue. I mean, full disclosure, I'm a post mill guy, but yeah. like, I don't have an issue looking at it through a post mill lens and still saying, yes, there's still evil in the world, whether it's through, mm -hmm. you know, whatever is displayed in our culture. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I guess I see it ultimately as, as the gospel goes forward and as culture is transformed through, mm -hmm. again, mm -hmm. not by, it doesn't have by cultural transformation, but by regeneration and right. as people are regenerated and sanctified, right. that has effects on how they live their life. But yep. as this happens, um, it's it's going to have an effect on communities and on um, Absolutely. And, and, and the world that people live yeah. in. And yeah. so, sure, is the opposition going to get stronger? And then, you know, there's going to be uh, the confrontation at the end. Like, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I guess I don't have too much of an issue with saying yes there is going to be strife in this age we shouldn't mm -hmm. expect as believers that things are just going to get better mm -hmm. for some mm -hmm. some kind of prosperity theology mm -hmm. version of it mm -hmm. um but kind of like a, a, a realistic viewpoint of mm -hmm. of um we're going to face trials and, and persecution and tribulation but we have confidence in knowing that yeah. the gospel is going to succeed and that christ yeah. is his kingdom is here now like yeah. you know he's he said 
all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You yeah. know, so yeah. we have, we should have, and again, I struggle with this just as much as anyone on a daily basis. Is my confidence really that yeah. Christ is the king of yeah. heaven and earth? Yeah. Yeah. And everything that you said, I think an all-millennialist could say. So you're like a no, I'm optimistic, an optimistic post-mill, or optimistic Here, a-mill. <laughs> here's my, here's my concern, and we'll talk about this later <laughs> on, is I think that there's some, there's some imminence passages to the return of Christ. Yeah. That um, and that's a whole other issue that we don't have time to get into tonight. That I think that I think uh, 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 postmillennialism in its most um, extreme, and I don't mean that negatively. I'm just sure. saying it's most it's most you know uh, fullest degree expression. It, it blunts that. And and but my biggest concern about m- postmillennialism is is not anything you said. I think I would agree with that. I think we might say, oh, well, I, th- I don't know if I'm quite that. I don't think I'm just gonna. But it, I think what it ends up doing is it plays on uh, the agitated um, uh, 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 feelings of Christians in a sort of post-Christian America, if I could sort of call it that. And it causes them, I think unwittingly, to put more emphasis, and of course we're all for cultural transformation, but it causes them, I think unwittingly, at least some, not all, Puts, puts an emphasis too much on cultural transformation, political influence, and all that kind of stuff, when I don't think that's the primary mission of the church. And you, you actually articulated that well when you said, of course, it's gospel transformation and then everything else is a consequence. I just don't see that being the case sometimes in post-millennial discussions. Not that I hang out at post-millennial you know, talk shops or whatever, but I'm just saying that's my bigger concern with post-millennialism is not the degree of optimism but the effect that it has on a person's um, uh, view about what's the most important thing for a Christian to be doing right now. I guess that's what I'm saying. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Ben. Good point. All right, any other questions? Yeah. You can bend that microphone down, Alva. The question I have about the way you have it set up there, Mm -hmm. uh, where do you figure that the seven angels and the plagues and the bowl of judgments where does that all come in yeah and and and, and as far as that goes the whole book of revelation well were you here last week alva okay um i think we talked about that last week a little bit i think that that is again that is um according to an amillennial view um according to a well let's let's go this way according to a premillennial view that is a, a more literal looking at Revelation chapter 4 through 19, and it's placing all of that in here, a lot of it. Whereas in a amillennial view, it's looking at a more symbolic interpretation of those things, and it's seeing those things, and there's just, it's all over the map as happening through the church age, and certainly a lot of it happening as tribulation may increase towards the as we get closer to the return of Christ. And okay. that's the concept I was talking about last week of recapitulation, mm-hmm. how I think what's happening in Roman, I mean, Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is just, it's John giving us, uh, he's not looking linearly, he's not looking necessarily as a timeline, but he's, so th- I think we should look at Revelation not so much linearly, but more as like circles of pictures of different views of the judgment and through history we have we have we have events that kind of picture that but also are a kind of uh 
physical representation of the ultimate end time judgment. So kind of there's a there's a dual aspect to it, if that makes okay, sense. Okay, so I, as I listened to what you talked about recapitulation mm -hmm. uh, last week, I went home wondering, okay, do you even think Revelation has any uh, in, any uh, value to us today as yes. far as looking at end times? Yes. And uh, yeah. So and you don't think anything's literal then? No. No. Okay. Well, that's what I live. No, with. <laughs> I think that it's. I think. I think you can't look. I think it's too simplistic to say it's all metaphorical or it's all literal. I just don't think you can read the Bible that way. I think it's much more complicated than that. And I'm not trying to act like it's so complicated that we can't understand it. I just think that, like you read the millennium. I think that I literally think that the millennium is uh, happening now and. Then the great white throne judgment comes in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, and that's literally going to happen. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's a literal judgment, there's a literal return of Christ, and there's a literal millennium right now. Its expression is just not future and f physical. It's more right now and spiritual, I think, from the amillennial view, from my perspective. John. I have an old man's bladder. I'm sorry, I might have missed something that <laughs> this, this pertains to. Yeah. So here's what... Here's what I think from all the scriptures you read tonight. And yeah. My thought is this. If you take Revelation chapter 20, literally, um, <laughs> and take it into account with uh -huh. the other scriptures, what seems to define the difference between this age and the age to come is the final judgment. And yeah. that's why there's a Revelation chapter 20, and then it switches over to 21, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Clearly, that's a different age. Uh, I think the age, the age differentiation in all mm -hmm. those scriptures in Matthew mm -hmm. chapter 13 mm -hmm. is a judgment. And that judgment has to be Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Well, I mean, mm. 11 through 15. Okay. That's what I think. That's okay. I, I would, I'd struggle with that language, has to be. Um, I hear you, John. Um, I think, I, I don't think that's what's happening. I think, I think, Revelation 20 and 21, I think it accords well. I think you've got the, I think Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through 10, 1 through 6, is this, is this age. It's the millennium. Then I think verses 7 through 10 are a literal defeat. So, Alva, I think it's a literal defeat of Satan. <laughs> and then I think that the, the, and then I think there's the great white throne judgment. And then I think you're off into... Then I think Revelation 21, you're, so guys, I, I, I think it's just a matter of whether we're looking at it sort of, sort of, this sort of more, is the timeline more kind of immediate or is it more drawn out? But I don't want you to leave here thinking that I don't think that these things are actually happening. That's not at all what I'm saying. I think that there's just a, a kind of um, simplicity and decisiveness to it. I think you've got this age. I think you've got judgment, return of Christ, great white throne judgment, Satan um, banished, and then I think you've got Revelation 21. I, I think that's the, and I think that makes sense when you read it in conjunction with this two-age grid that you see all throughout Paul's letters and, and Jesus. That, that's just my sense. Are there holes in it? Yes. I'm just saying I think that makes the most sense of looking at it that way. That's my, that's my sense. Any other questions? Yeah, Taylor. Quick thought on that. Give me an easy one, man. Jeez. <laughs> I do have a question, but a quick yeah. thought on the literal versus figurative. Um, I heard it explained one time that 
in the in the recapitulation that's done seven times through Revelation, yeah, and it, it's um, a type of apocalyptic language, a genre mm -hmm. that existed in the world then that we don't really use anymore. Yeah, and so the original audience would have been familiar with that style of yeah. a figurative type of language that would have meant something literal. Um, yeah, and there's there's other books that aren't in the Bible that are examples of that kind of literature. Yeah, um, and that accords well with the, so the seven repeated structure was. Similar, so that would be John's structure there, but he also did that in the um, Apostle of John when it's structured on the seven I am statements mm -hmm. to represent the mm -hmm. divinity of Christ. Yep. Yep. Um, so that kind of uh, sort of bookends his writing well mm -hmm. in a sort of pattern yep. that makes sense. Yep. Um, and then to Ben's point about the spread of the gospel not being on Antarctica, it is. Um, I, know <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know a pastor who rotates uh, routinely. All right, Antarctica. praise God. So there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but my question, yeah. I don't know where the, the scriptures that talk about um, every tribe, tongue, and nation represented before the throne, mm -hmm. where would the line be between amillennial and premillennial and how optimistic we are? And is there any sort of, like, I guess, literal expectation that every people group, every like literally every language, because, I mean, I, I think we would certainly think that there's people groups that have passed, like, totally, like, are extinct now, groups yeah. that languages and tribes yeah. and things that, that don't exist anymore that maybe never heard the gospel. Yeah. So is there a modern expectation that the gospel has to literally reach all the corners? Certainly should be the goal, but is there an expectation that that will happen before the coming? And would that fall into well, amillennial versus premillennial? I think that just, you know, for the postmillennialists and the amillennialists, I think that is just the expectation that that's happening now. And this is where Ben and I are going to lock arms, and we're going to be more optimistic. I'm going to be, and I might be one step behind him, but I mean, I'm going to be an optimistic amillennial, and I'm going to think that we're in the age of gospel advance, and those tribes and tongues are, those tribes and nations and tongues are coming to faith now. And I think, more specifically, about your question about, I think uh, there's Matthew 24, I think 14, um, I think there is a verse that says, you know, that this gospel must be preached amongst all the nations and then the end comes, so I think there's this expectation that the gospel will go to all, and I don't think that's speaking about necessarily geopolitical nations, but tribes and tongues, that's a tricky verse, we could spend a lot of time on Matthew 24, um, in and of itself, uh, Matthew 24, 14, um, Am I just making up verses here? Um, oh, I was looking at verse 23. Chapter 23. Okay, verse 24. Okay, and the, this gospel, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be, pre be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, you know, I think all that's happening now, and I don't, I, I don't think that that is, um, I think, I think, but I think premillennialists, and amillennialists and postmillennialists would all agree that that's kind of happening to some degree or another now. That would be my sense, Taylor. I don't know if that makes sense. All right. Any other questions? Hey, Julie. All right. Good. Is that Julie? Yeah. Um, so in uh, Revelation 24, too, mm -hmm. I didn't have my glasses Can you on. pull the microphone so down just a touch? Yeah. Yes. Can you hear better? Yeah. Right. So Revelation 24 through... Ish. Um, mm -hmm. So when it's talking about the the people who've been beheaded and stuff like that that are with Jesus, yep. do you think that that's the Christians are with Jesus and then the yeah. people who aren't Christians aren't like right now, or do you think it's more the the people who've 
literally been beheaded and died specifically for Christ or with Jesus, and the other Christians are. No, I, I think it's both. Waiting. I think that there's going to be an increasing tribulation as an increasing difficulty as we get close to the return of Christ. But I would view verses four through six. Let me just read it. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls. So I think that's Christians that are with Christ presently reigning. Also, I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Uh, martyrs, we'll read about those in Hebrews 11. And those who have not worshipped the beast or its image and have not received its mark on their foreheads and their hands. I think that is, uh, this is again, I don't think that there's, I think that the, the mark of the beast is more just a general description of unbelievers. Um, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the, an amillennial view of that, and again, there's, this isn't without holes, an amillennial view of that is that they came to life as referring to the first resurrection or being born again. Um, it's, 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 it's coming to faith. And they ran to the, so I think this is a, uh, a metaphorical picture of the saints in heaven. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. So I think, that's, I think that accords well with what we read from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. There's these saints in heaven, and when they come at the return of Christ, there's the resurrection those that are still alive are changed, glorified saints, then they receive their, I think that's what's happening. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They're doing it now. The rest, the rest of the dead did not come to life. In other words, this second resurrection until the thousand years were ended, this is the first resurrection, or I just said second resurrection. But those, so I think that that's what's happening there. I think that's a picture of who, what's going on. I think you see that in John chapter five. Let me go to John chapter five. And I think Jesus kind of speaks about this first resurrection, which I think is the new birth. John chapter 5, um, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He did not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So I think that's what John's speaking of there in, in Revelation 20. I could be wrong, but I think that accords well with what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4 at the return of Christ, and 1 Corinthians 15. Does that make sense, Julie? Where'd you go? Oh, you, you already left. Okay, all right, all right. Any, oh, Dr. Derringer. Here we go. As he strides confidently to the microphone. So I think, like a lot of people, this is an area of a lot of curiosity. Yeah. Um, I've read this chapter from Grudem's book on systematic theology. He's a premillennialist, by the way, just to classify, if you want to categorize him. Yeah. Yeah. And. <laughs> I, no, I didn't, I didn't say yeah. that. No, I don't mean that negatively. I don't well, mean that negatively. I mean, I'm just, so yeah. am I. So. I think it's just helpful to but think, it's just helpful to know where people are coming he, from. But he, you know, there's that, and I'm, you know, read other books, yeah. done studies on it, mm -hmm. and I think one of the challenges is there's, I would venture to say there's probably all four views in this congregate congregation and I think that I, you can't I don't think that we can say any of them are wrong um, and I teeter you know and you know look at stuff from other views and one of the things that I think of is the book of Revelation specifically says blessed are those who read this and hear its reading 
And I'm reading a book on Revelation by a um, a dispensational pre-mill right now, um, just because I had it on my bookshelf, (laughs) and why not? Just because. Um, (laughs) But... But because I want to, I want to expose myself yeah. to all the views and yeah. you know, kind of know why I believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. But I think the key and one of the reasons why this isn't clear is because it's going to stir up that curiosity. Yeah, it's going to stir us up to want to study it, study the book of the Bible that specifically says. And granted, there a lot of this comes from more than just Revelation, but the book of the Bible that specifically says you will be blessed. And I think that the point is that it keeps our eyes on the coming kingdom Mm -hmm. because, you know, I think, you know, for every argument that I've heard, I can think of a counter argument. Even the stuff that I believe, I can think of a counter argument. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in Grudem's book, he does that. He gives all the points. Honestly, the sections that on post and amillennial are actually longer than the Mm -hmm. premillennial. He's like Mm -hmm. basically, you know, I've shredded premillennial before Mm -hmm. I'd get to that. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't really – land the ship and say this is what it has to be yeah. even though that's what he is right so you know it's easy to get upset because i think our natural sinful state is to want to be right and i know mm-hmm. that is very much who i am mm-hmm. but trying to like recalibrate that the whole point of this is to get us to focus on mm-hmm. the return of christ Th- those those I five i think, I think right. there are about five major points you made at the beginning yep. Yep. that all the different views right. have so right that's kind of rather than a question or a challenge. Statement, yeah. It's just something to think about for everybody. I think it's a wonderful exhortation. And I think that's what I kind of want to begin with is like be charitable towards one another. But here's the, here's the extremes I don't want us to get into, Danny, because you made a great point. I don't want us to be so certain that it's this, that we kind of dog Christians who don't believe the way we do on this or we, we, we argue with them. But I also don't want you to go away from this. I don't want you to go away from this saying, oh, well, boy, this is really, really hard. Boy, I just, I believe it all pans out in the end. You know, I'm a pan-millennialist. I, I don't, I know that, that's a cute, that's a cute phrase. It's a cute phrase. We get it, ha-ha. But don't, like, don't, don't, like, dig into it. Be, be somebody that kind of, because what happens is when you, you, you study these things, it, it, it enlarges your heart for the glory of God, and it makes you like, Danny, I think this is what you're saying. It makes you just worship him more. And, you know, when you, you see, you, you kind of settle on a view, and then a, a brother, Ben, gets up, and he says this, and it kind of tugs you that way, and John and Alva get up, and it kind of tugs me this way. That's good for us. That's good for us. Now, don't be that way when we're talking about the atonement. <laughs> don't be that way when we're talking about the finished work of Christ or the nature of Christ. But that's the difference between Christology and soteriology, the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation, and eschatology. So yes and amen, Danny. Yes and amen. Um, and let's be pulled, and let's let it cause us to lean. So let's end on this, four implications, okay? And this is kind of hand, hand in hand with what I think you were getting at, Danny. Uh, four implications. We should have confidence, okay? That should be the overarching um, tone of a Christian. Romans 8.31. Put that up there if you got it on the screen. Romans 8.31. Maybe if you don't have it. Okay. We've turned off those screens. Romans 8.31. If God is for us, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We should be confident. We should have a sober optimism and joy. Uh, I, I will say this. Uh, I, I do think, and I don't think this, I don't think any other millennial view would disagree with this, I think even the most optimistic post and Ben expressed it, 
and I certainly know premillennialists would view this, is that we should not be surprised at the struggle that we're facing as Christians, okay? So we should, 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 12 to 13, if you could put that up so I could read it from the screen. Uh, 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Uh, and, and it's the mark of a Christian, Romans 8, 16 through 17, that we will suffer with him. If we're going to be glorified with him, we shall suffer with him. So we shouldn't be surprised when our you know, culture becomes uh, hostile to us. We shouldn't act like, what's going on? Thirdly, we should remember personal watchfulness. Personal watchfulness. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Um, Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Now, we're not going to get into what Peter's saying there. I just want to make this eschatological point. Jesus is coming back. Let's just say that's the point that Peter's making. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's question, what type of people should we be? Look, we're going to live forever. Our life matters, so we should be people that are concerned with our personal watchfulness. And then I think we should be people that should have a great evangelistic burden. Uh, whether Jesus comes back sooner or later, everybody is going to meet the Lord. We will all stand before him. And there is a sense in which Christians becomes, can become so academic and doctrinally minded that they carry their books around, they meet with other Christians, we have all these little intramural debates, and we get mad at each other, we like each other, whatever, we hassle each other, while the world doesn't know about Jesus. And so we should have an evangelistic burden. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, that he's coming like a thief. There's an imminence. Jesus is coming. And even if, even if we don't live to that day when he comes, well, all of us are going to die. At least most of us are going to die. And so if, if Jesus isn't coming to us, we're going to him, and we will stand before him. And if we are outside of him, or if the world's outside of him, they will be judged. So we should be a church that cares deeply about these things. But don't just let it stay here. We should be sending missionaries. Um, we should be having gospel conversations with our neighbors. We should seek to take the gospel into our um, areas of influence. And I think that's the posture of a Christian. Okay, let me pray. I know it's getting late, and I will stick around to answer any questions. Lord, thank you for this discussion. Thank you that we're tugged kind of each way. Thank you for Danny's final exhortation. Let us be people that just humbly think deeply about these things. We don't want to... Uh, hold on to this with a closed fist so that we alienate uh, brothers and sisters in our congregation, but we also don't want to be so flippant about it that it doesn't stretch us. So let us find that, that beautiful uh, uh, balance there of, of a healthy pursuit of these things, and I pray that you'd help us in this as, and grow, that we grow together in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll see you next week.